Welcome back to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and I'm pleased to be joined this week by Professor Gabriel Reynolds, who is a professor in our theology department. We're going to be talking about his life, his area of study, and all the rest. So, Gabriel, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you. I'm delighted and honored to be here, Dan. So, if you would begin by just introducing yourself to the audience in a general way. Well, I work in the theology department at Notre Dame, although I was just speaking to my son about this this morning. I wasn't actually trained in theology, strictly speaking. Uh-huh. My formation is in Islamic studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, my undergraduate degree was actually in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies, and then I went, in, went on to do graduate work in the study of Islam in particular. And at the time, Notre Dame's theology department was looking for someone who could deal with Muslim-Christian relations, so I Mm -hmm. ended up here. So my own academic formation is in terms of the historical study of Islam as a religion. And that's really distinct, you know, from theological study, which after all is the study of God. Sure. So I found myself here in the theology department. (laughs) And, you know, for the past 17 years or so, I've been learning more about theology. And in fact, a lot of the courses I teach are very theological. So I've benefited from colleagues in the department in my continual discernment about what is theology. And you know, it's, it's all sort of complicated but exciting because I'm dealing with two di- different religious traditions. I'm a Catholic and I'm interested in Catholic theology, mm-hmm. but sort of my, my day job um, <laughs> is to do good Islamic studies and do sort of robust critical scholarship on Islam. Great, thank you. That's, that's helpful background for us. And where are you from, and what was the makeup of your family growing up? So I'm originally from Connecticut, where eventually I would do my graduate work, and I come from a family that was mixed Protestant Catholic. My mother raised the kids, my sister and I, Catholic. My father was a non-practicing Protestant, and I had interest always in Arabic because my mother is from Syrian Lebanese heritage. And so we we knew there was this part of the family, you know, that had this Middle Eastern background, and I always wanted to learn more about it. So when I went off to college, which was at Columbia in New York, I felt like, well, now's a chance to to learn Arabic at least and to get over to the Middle East. And that was the beginning of sort of my academic formation in Middle Eastern studies. After my sophomore year, I traveled to the Middle East, to Jordan, and I've continued sort of focusing my academic interest on on Arabic, but it, that's been shaped more and more on questions of religion, which really fascinate me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, you talked about this mixed household in terms of practice. What were some of the moments for you where your own faith deepened to the point where you said, this is something I want to take upon for my own and, and live in my own life? Right. It was a slow transformation in terms of a deepening of my faith life. And it's a bit difficult now to discern looking back about how I became a fully committed Catholic because I wasn't growing up. Mm -hmm. I was a practicing Catholic, so I did CCD, got my sacraments. But I didn't didn't really have an experience of personal inner conversion until college. Mm -hmm. And it was in part just meeting meeting Christians, many of whom were evangelical Protestants in Mm -hmm. college, Mm -hmm. but also meeting Muslims in my time in the Middle East then, and having these examples of people who take their faith really seriously. Mm -hmm. My experience in my hometown was that there are very few people who were fully engaged and committed to their faith. 
I mean, that was my experience as a kid. They, they probably were there, and I didn't find them or see them. And so then I went off to college, and I met Muslims and evangelical Protestants who were really serious about it. And I think that that experience, encountering them, made me think, well, this is still an option, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Even in the current day, contemporary day, you could still have an encounter with God. And religion can't be totally crazy because there are very sane people that I'm meeting uh-huh. who are religious. So, yeah, it was, I think it was that experience that led to a sort of reversion. Mm-hmm. And if you could describe for us what about Catholicism still remained attractive to you, even though you were, of course, our our brothers and sisters in in Christianity, and also Islam being an Abrahamic religion, but one might think you might have been attracted to, to something like that that you were encountering. So what about Catholicism still remained attractive to you in that context? It's a really it's a really good question because I was attracted both to Islam and to evangelical Protestantism and you know I think different religious traditions have their own sort of systems or um, solar systems almost where things orbit in a reasonable way and everything works together and there's their inner relationships which are coherent and so when you begin to enter a little bit into that system you begin to appreciate sort of the beauty there and the logic there. So I had that experience with both Islam and, I, and with evangelical Protestantism and was attracted to both. That experience, though, ultimately challenged me to learn more about my own faith. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, an experience many, many people have that discovering the other um, leads you to, to become more introspective and to say, what is my faith about? Before I make a jump you know, and convert, let's say, to Islam. Let me learn about my own faith. And I realized how poorly catechized I was Mm -hmm. as I began to read a little bit. And I met some good examples. I had a a TA when I was at Columbia who was in a, a Roman history class who was a very faithful Catholic and really challenged me, sometimes in a in a really provocative way, to take my faith seriously and to understand more what the liturgy, what the Mass in particular was about. And I'll just add one more thing about my experience during this time. I read The Seven Story Mountain by by Thomas Merton. Sure. So I think it was because part of his story, Merton's story, has to do with Columbia because he was there. So I I was at Columbia and someone said, you know, you really have to read this book. Mm -hmm. And his own experience of conversion, Merton's story, of course, is that he spent his youth basically as an unbeliever and, you know, was interested in everything but religion, basically, and mm-hmm. going to nightclubs and mm-hmm. things in New York City. Of course, he ends up as a monk. <laughs> that sort of was an enchanting story to see that journey from lack of faith to a full embrace of faith. So that book had an impact on me as well. Mm-hmm. That's great to hear. You mentioned that you visited the Middle East and and probably have many times over the course of your lifetime and career now. What has it been like being a Christian in the Middle East, studying Islam, kind of a melting pot of of identity? Well, I think I'd start by just saying my initial experience when in 1993, I traveled to uh, Jordan. I was on a study abroad program to go and learn Arabic. And we got off of the plane in the airport in Amman, the capital of Jordan. And out of the airport, and very soon after that, we heard the call to prayer. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, it's a really intense experience to to be in a totally different cultural environment where almost all of the women are wearing Islamic headscarves or hijabs. Mm-hmm. 
and everything looks different, everything smells different, it's, the sounds are different. And then you hear the call to prayer, which, as your listeners probably know, in the Islamic world is sent out with loudspeakers mm-hmm. that are attached to the mosques, you know. So whether you want to or not, you're going to hear it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I just had this sort of sudden, almost shocking experience of the intensity of religion and the, the depth of the faith of Muslims, which means that these public displays of religion are not seen as abrasive or intrusive or violations of privacy, but are seen as the public proclamation of religion and the dissemination of religion. And are for most Muslims in most Islamic countries, they're glad that they hear the call to prayer, you know. So, okay, so that's all one experience. I don't want to yeah. go on forever, but the, the, the intensity and seriousness with which Muslims take their religion mm-hmm. That had an impact on me. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty complicated. We could work through it a little bit because Catholic Church has its own history of how and in what ways the religion should be, should be spread. How do we evangelize? What is the rela- relationship between the church and public space, mm-hmm. the church and state? Those are all complicated questions in Catholic traditions. Yeah. So, I, you know, that's, that's sort of one dimension of experience. Another experience that I've had in the Middle East, maybe I'll just mention three. So a second one is Muslims are often, I don't want to generalize, but they're often very interested in proselytizing. Mm-hmm. So most non-Muslims who travel to the Islamic world, I think it's probably more pronounced in the, in the Middle East, in, in Arab countries. At some point, if they can communicate in Arabic or if the local person, local Muslim speaks English, they'll get questions like, why aren't you a Muslim? Mm -hmm. Or maybe even critiques of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Why do you believe in three gods, this Mm -hmm. trinity thing Mm -hmm. instead of Mm -hmm. one? So that's another another experience that's impacted me from time in the Middle East. But then a third, I think, is witnessing the the Christians of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So that made a big impact on me because there are Christian communities, especially where my family comes from in Syria and Lebanon. You know, there are historic Christian communities that are still a significant presence today, although much diminished from what they were. And they have, for centuries, had Muslim neighbors and friends, and they've found ways to live out their Christian life in Muslim-majority context, which is very complicated for them, and they've held with very often with great tenacity to the Christian faith. So that, I could speak more about that, but that, that, that's been an interesting influence. Yeah, I'm sure that's inspiring. I I think in, at least in an American context, sometimes our faith, it's not very challenging for us to live it or at least practice it. In in certain contexts, there's sometimes either an apathy towards devout practice or it's easy to find plenty of people who, who are practicing their faith and yet to be inspired by Christians who are living as you said, in neighborhoods and, and having conversations and working alongside people who have another, another faith, it's something that they really have to mean what they say and, and, and live in, in a way that right. uh, is very faithful. Right. Well, it's a complicated situation for Christians in Islamic countries. Historically, there's a status that non-Muslims have called the dhimmi in the Islamic world, which is basically a second-class status, mm-hmm. although people sometimes argue that it's really a protected status, so we could speak about that more. But a, l- a lot of Christians also have great respect and appreciation for their Muslim neighbors, mm-hmm. and 
for the great majority of Christians, for example, in the Arabic-speaking Middle East, there's no question that Muslim Christ- Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Mm-hmm. There's only one Arabic word for God. It's Allah. Mm-hmm. It's used by Muslims. It's used by Christians. And there's no question that this is a shared faith. Mm-hmm. So it is complicated. There, there are histories of real conflict and even persecution. There are times of, of that. But underneath all of that, there's this steady appreciation that we're, we're fellow believers in mm-hmm. the same God. Mm-hmm. That's helpful to hear. Now, you decided then to continue on in pursuit of, of further studies, the doctoral studies. What motivated that decision, and, and what was that experience like? I think I felt, a, I felt a bit of a conflict in terms of vocational discernment, and part of it is connected to the experience of discovering Islam and becoming a more committed Catholic, committed Catholic believer. So difficulty in discernment was I had this great intellectual interest in Islam mm-hmm. and then this personal commitment to my own faith. And so I was discerning between should I basically study Catholic theology or should I continue with Islamic studies? And eventually I chose to go to a, a private secular school. I studied at Yale to study, to study Islam. And I think that deci- decision was ultimately triggered by a conviction that Islam has not been fully understood, that there are a lot of intellectual questions around Islam. I had a sense as I, even in undergrad, that there were a lot of intellectual debates, a lot of uncertainty about especially Islam's origins. Yeah, that ultimately sort of pulled me and attracted me to that field. I felt like I could contribute something mm-hmm. to those to those debates. You know, when I was a kid and the rare occasions that I ever thought about Islam or Muslims where I grew up. There were very, very few Muslims. That's changed in the United States now mm-hmm. as Islam is growing. So it's common now for people to meet Muslims, you know, in the 1970s and 80s in suburban Connecticut. It wasn't. <laughs> but the rare occasions that I heard about Islam around the Islamic Revolution in Iran and other occasions that it would be brought up from someone traveling in the Middle East, I always thought, gosh, Islam is some Eastern religion, and I associated it with Buddhism, Hinduism. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's completely wrong. Islam comes from the heart of the Abrahamic tradition. Many of the biblical characters um, that we know appear also in the Quran. And so my understanding is that um, a robust study of Islam could actually take place from the perspective of someone who knows knows the biblical tradition, Mm -hmm. who knows Christianity, at least, and some Judaism. So anyway, I felt a calling to contribute to those debates, feeling that my my Christian faith would actually be an asset and not a detriment to Islamic studies. Mm-hmm. And has that played out for you in not only your time in doctoral studies, but beyond that you have felt that sense of being able to contribute in a unique way as a Christian? Right, exactly. So my doctoral seminar, excuse me, my doctoral dissertation, this is what happens when you teach graduate courses. The word (laughs) seminar just is there in your head. My doctoral dissertation was on the first Islamic history of Christianity, so history of Christianity from an Islamic perspective. And I investigated basically the sources that this Muslim author who wrote in the, the late 10th century used to try to understand Christianity. And since that time, during my time at Notre Dame, I've mostly been interested in understanding the relationship between the Quran and the Bible. I don't know how 
deep we want to get into these sorts of topics, but, you know, the Quran comes from, according to tradition, the preaching of Muhammad between the years 610 and 632. Now, Islamic tradition says that for his childhood and for the first period of his preaching, he was in a pagan city. And, uh, and so there weren't Jews and Christians around. And so the background to Islam is really this paganism, right? This polytheistic, idol-worshipping culture. Mm-hmm. And so the, the arguments I've basically made and sort of what distinguishes my scholarship is that actually when we read the Quran, we see that not only in the sorts of characters that are there, but also in themes, motifs, turns of phrase, it's a deeply biblical book. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the role I've played in Islamic studies is showing that the Quran and Bible are closely related. Muslims should be reading the Bible, Christians should be reading the Quran, and that they're, they're very closely related faiths. Okay, okay. We'll be happy to dive into that a little bit more. I do want to, though, make mention of your personal life, that you are married and have children. So how did you meet your wife and come together in that way? Yeah, great. So my wife is from Lebanon, and her name is, is Lourdes from the the pilgrimage site yeah. in France. Yeah. And her parents were, although they had never had the chance to travel there, but had devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so we met during my time um, studying in, in the Middle East, and it's a, been a beautiful experience to have this intercultural marriage. Mm-hmm. And we spend a lot of time still in Lebanon. Her family is mostly still in Lebanon. And our kids have you know, grown up knowing both cultures, speaking also Arabic in addition to English. So that's been a great, a great richness in mm-hmm. our life. And all of our kids were born here in South Bend. They're mm-hmm. all Hoosiers. <laughs> we have four, four children, ages 15, 14, 12, and 7. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, um, we spend a lot of time there, but we've, we've actually spent two complete years in Lebanon, and the kids went, went to school there. So, so to come to have dinner in the Reynolds house, it's a funny mix between Arabic and English and sometimes some French uh-huh. there. And of course, my wife is also being Lebanese. She's she's a Catholic, but she comes from the Maronite mm. Church. Mm-hmm. So she's an Eastern Rite Catholic. So when we spend time in Lebanon, we go to liturgy in, in a Maronite Church. So they've discovered some of the richness within Catholicism mm. there. Mm. That's great. I know a lot of couples, uh, when, when you start to become more serious in your relationship and you start to think about marriage and I term it, you go from the me to the we conversation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's great sacrifices that have to be made to say, no, we're going we're gonna to make a go of this together. What was that conversation like with your wife, the decision to eventually spend most of your family's time living in America, far away from your family, and what has that sacrifice meant to you? So we sort of manage it by having frequent trips to Lebanon, but it's been very difficult, and it's a complication within intercultural marriage. There's no question about it. So there's a lot of richness, but there, there are challenges as well. So it's, it's not just a question of sort of preserving the culture and keeping the language going, because we, we do all that. We eat Lebanese at home, and mm-hmm. we speak Arabic and all of that. But um, it's the time with her family. Yeah. Yeah. And she also, she's a poet, and she writes poetry in Arabic. And she misses that, the environment where... She's in conversation with other Arabic poets in Lebanon. 
so yeah, I think there's there is some sadness there. You know, we we try to negotiate it a bit in the summers. Very often, she'll spend the entire summer there, mm-hmm. and the kids will be part there and part here um, with me because usually I have commitments that keep me for most of the summer back at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. So it it has been a challenge. Mm-hmm. But a, a true, I'm sure, a testament to your marriage that each marriage has its challenges, but that you've been able to thrive and continue to have a a robust family life. I think so. And the Catholic vision of, of marriage is so beautiful. And the model of, of Christ in the church, Christ who died for, for the church, that's been a great comfort to me. I mean, these are minor problems compared to th- things that other people have to negotiate. But still, in some of the complications, we have that model of, of Christ in the church. And we know that marriage is a sacrament. It is something forever. Of course, you know, um, there are all sorts of complications and challenges along the way. You know, the church has really nourished our relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the experience of having children is like nothing else in in the human experience. What have been some of the highlights, uh, maybe some challenges, but just the general sense of being a father? Family life is the most beautiful aspect of the human existence, in my humble opinion, which is correct. Um, <laughs> so I feel that it's almost ineffable. There's, there's no e- easy way to explain how beautiful family life has been. And, you know, the joy you get from um, watching your spouse or your children accomplish things is much more than, you know, any satisfaction from personal accomplishments. And, you know, the funny thing is your kid can do something that may seem to others very simple, being in a play or something with sports, something very simple. And to you, it just seems like they've conquered the world. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, there's also an experience of the opportunity you get as a parent to sacrifice yourself for the sake of your children. Mm-hmm. Even just the driving around that you do in our stage of parenting, because <laughs> our kids are a bit older and involved in lots of lots and lots of activities. It would seem to be just a pain that you have to drive. My sister calls it sharking uh-huh. because... Um, sharks apparently have to always be swimming. They never uh. stop swimming. So like driving around your, your kids, <laughs> preteen and teenage kids, is like just you're constantly driving, right? Anyway, but that in like being with a sick kid when they're younger, you know, be staying up with them when they can't sleep, all, all of the, the things that parents do is an opportunity to carry a cross and to, to sacrifice yourself and to live a Christ-like life. Yeah, it's, it's funny to me if there is any selfishness left that – Marriage definitely challenged me out of that, and then parenthood really challenged right, me out right, of that to say right. my life is is not my own, and it's you know out of love i I want to provide it my time and my effort for our children, so that's right. a very fruitful reflection i think for for any parent. I do want to touch on your experience of being here at Notre Dame in the theology department, encountering students. What have been some of the important moments of that? of the, the culture here at Notre Dame and teaching theology. Great. Yeah, it's a very interesting experience being at Notre Dame and a beautiful experience. I think there's sort of two different domains that are pretty distinct, you know, in which I teach. One is for the undergraduates. You know, I teach core courses at Notre Dame, so we still, thank goodness, have two choir courses in theology. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I teach students there, the vast majority of whom are not going to major in theology, mm-hmm. you know, out of a class of 40, which is a typical class size, 
maybe there'll be one theology major okay. or future theology major. So that's one experience. And then the other experience are the graduate students and the theology majors who are sort of, there you have sort of the inside conversation about theology, you know, and yeah. students are fully engaged and they're really conversation partners. So, but with that first group of the core courses, there one has a challenge of seeking to deliver the material, but also convince students that theology is coherent and beautiful, and sometimes convince students that belief in God is a reasonable option. Uh-huh. And honestly, m- my anecdotal observation I don't have statistics, so maybe someone will prove me wrong about this, <laughs> but my anecdotal observation over 17 years now teaching at Notre Dame is that we have more and more skeptical students mm-hmm. in the classroom, yeah. even out, more and more outright atheists or ex-Catholics. Those core courses are becoming more of a challenge. That's another conversation about why that is, why yeah. the student body seems to be changing, but that's, that's my experience. And so in those core courses, then you have the challenge of doing some basic work and speaking about, you know, belief in God can be reasonable. Mm-hmm. You know, why is there something instead of nothing? Right. Think, think you through some of those questions. I even try to integrate a little bit of science and theology, even though it's not my domain at all, <laughs> but thinking about physics and relativity and some of those, those questions as a sort of starting point to doing theology. And then helping students see the coherence of Catholic teaching. And then, of course, my particular job is taking the next step and thinking about Muslim-Christian relations, mm-hmm. which is complicated because you need to start with just respecting Islam, seeing how Islam works as a religious system, um, respecting the piety of Muslims, and then you can get into some of the theological questions. Okay, what do Muslims say about Christianity? How do Christians respond? So it's pretty intense, that undergraduate teaching, especially in the courses that deal with Muslim-Christian relations. For the other domain, just very briefly, for the, the theology majors and the graduate students, I have some just terrific... PhD and master's students who are doing Islamic studies, many of whom are doing Muslim-Christian relations, and they're just a joy to to work with, and I learn a lot from them. Many of them have great language skills, Arabic and other Islamic languages, so that's really, as I mentioned, a conversation partner partner more than a student-professor relationship. And given all that, what would you say keeps you fed, keeps you interested, keeps you alive? in doing this for a number of years now and still excited to come to work and, and be a part of this each, each semester, each year? It's mostly my admittedly imperfect spiritual life, I think, which is a resource for that. And I have a long way to go in the spiritual life. You know, I, I do turn to the Lord regularly in thinking about my vocation and what I'm doing in my life. In that That's family life and my work at Notre Dame. Sure. I pray regularly and seek the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary for my family, but also for, for Notre Dame and for the students. So that's, yeah, that's very important. And it gives one the sense that this is not just a job to get a a paycheck, but you you want students to experience human flourishing and ultimately salvation. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty serious stuff that we're doing. And yeah, I mean, yeah, so my spiritual life is very important to all of this. Great. Thank you. You also have a podcast, so you're a fellow podcaster. I do want to touch on that. Could you give us a sense of what your podcast is and what you're trying to accomplish in that? Right. So our podcast is almost as good as Everyday Holiness. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost. It's called Minding Scripture. Yeah. 
and it comes out of the World Religions World Church program, which is within theology at Notre Dame. And very briefly, the idea is to have exciting, intense conversations about Scripture, and that means both the Bible and the Quran. Mm -hmm. So I sort of am the moderator, and then we have three regular hosts, a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim. So okay. that's, those are my colleagues, Sveen yeah. Novik, Francesca Murphy, and Munim Suri, all, all in theology. And so we deal with um, questions that intersect the Quran and the Bible. Sometimes those are characters. So we have episodes on Adam and Moses. What is Adam like in the Bible and in the Quran? What do Jews, Christians, and Muslims say about him? Or sometimes it's topics like one of the recent ones we've released has to do with the afterlife in, these, uh, in the scriptures. What do the scriptures say about the, the afterlife? And we bring in guests as well sometimes to animate that further. Mm-hmm. And what was the motivation for putting the podcast together and what has the experience of having it been like? Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's deeply connected to what I see as the role of the program, World Religions, World Church, which is to show that you can have the robust study of religions from a Catholic perspective. So you can do both. You can study religions for their own sake, and you can also be interested in thinking along with the church about religions. Mm-hmm. Right? So you don't have to compromise one in order to do the other. It doesn't have to be just sort of like a Catholic apologetics or evangelization mm-hmm. or the critical study of religion. You can do sort of comparative theology and good robust study of Islam or Judaism or other religions. So in other words, what the podcast tries to animate is that you can speak about topics across religious lines or divisions, and you can learn to disagree well. Mm-hmm. Right? The goal is not to say that Islam and Judaism and Christianity are the same. The goal is to appreciate the differences. And, you know, sometimes, as listeners will discover, the podcast episodes become pretty intense, and mm-hmm. there's some sharp differences. Um, sometimes there are also laughs. The model is cultivating friendship across these religious lines and showing that there's coherence within the different religious traditions. And I think that's really important because a lot of times there is, I think not only in academic scholarship, but just in interpersonal relations, a fear a fear of the other, a fear of other religions or or followers of other religions. And sometimes it seems that that kind of dialogue, knowing that we we won't end up agreeing on everything, but we may come to a better understanding, is an effective way to reduce some of that fear and get to know other people as people rather than particular religious label. There's, There's no question. And, you know, the church has been involved actively in the study of other religions, in a sense, from from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Many of the church fathers had important discussions with non-Christian traditions. When we think of the dialogues of Origen with Celsus or Augustine with the Manichaeans. So there's always always this interest in, in non-Christian religions. Even Justin Martyr already was interested in, in discussions with Jews. So there's something very Catholic about doing this. There's a call from Vatican II in particular of cultivating friendship. So one of the Vatican II documents, one of the last documents to be promulgated, is called Nostra Aetate from 1965. It calls for friendship between religions and has a really positive assessment of other religious traditions without compromising the unique supernatural quality of Christian revelation, mm-hmm. the central place of Christ in the history of God's relationship with the world. The Church sort of models for us that you can fully appreciate the beauty and uniqueness of the Catholic faith and also appreciate other traditions. It's not, you know, it's not one or the other. Mm-hmm, 
And you mentioned in the United States a growing Muslim population, and I think more contact probably of people of the Christian tradition with Muslims. What would be some recommendations you would have for Christians encountering Muslims for the first time in terms of understanding the deep faith of Muslim neighbors, as well as a way to have a constructive dialogue? Right, terrific. So, yes, Islam is is growing. I don't want to say that say that as though there were some threat from the growth of Islam. I mean, it's still about maybe 2% of the American population. Um, so it's, you know, they're living as minorities and with all the challenges of, of living as minorities in the United States. But, you know, it's very common now, even in suburban and even some rural communities to have Muslims around. There are more and more mosques in the United States. So they're, they're part of the American story now. The only coherent response to that from non-Muslims, Christians in particular, is to reach out in friendship to Muslims as neighbors. Maybe the, the place to start in thinking about appreciating Muslims and their faith is to understand that they have all of the complications that Christians do mm-hmm. living in a largely secular culture. You know, this is a challenge for Catholics, for any religious person to live for different reasons. For Muslims, there's probably an added challenge because they are living as minorities. They're stigmatized because of acts of violence with which they have no association Mm -hmm. or sympathy for. So they're stigmatized because of that. I mean, Catholics can appreciate it. We've gone through this terrible abuse crisis, Mm -hmm. and um, we feel probably a bit of stigma about that. Mm -hmm. We've had nothing to do, you know, lay people with the abuse crisis itself, but we can be stigmatized Mm -hmm. by association with Mm -hmm. it. So that's a good place to start and reach out to Muslims with sympathy and appreciation for the complications and struggles that they that they have. Muslims who are immigrants, you know, their aspirations are like any immigrant community mm-hmm. uh, that almost everyone, you know, has ancestors who are who are immigrants, so they have the same aspirations, so that's a common human quest. In the Holy Father Francis has really encouraged us to reach out in charity and love and a spirit of hospitality. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's worth saying a couple of things about Islamic faith, sure. but Muslims tend to be very religious. doesn't mean they all are, but they tend to be very religious. And at the heart of Islam is the notion that there's one God and that this one God has communicated a law to humanity and the proper response to the blessings which God gives us in nature is observance of that law. So the law is really central for the Islamic mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. There's also spiritual traditions, etc., but the law is really central. So Muslims are very attentive, I mean religious Muslims are very attentive to the, the various stipulations of Islamic law. So there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. During Ramadan, you fast, you know, from sunup to sundown. You pray five times a day, always in Arabic, always facing the same direction, which is Mecca always in the same, with the same motions, the same words, right? So there's diligent attentiveness to what is the right way to do something, what is the wrong way to do something. But the, the source of all of that is the notion that the law sort of mediates between God and humanity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's very helpful. Thank you. You talked about realizing your own lack of catechesis as a young person, when you were coming to appreciate more and learn more about your Catholic faith. And I wonder if there's a connection there to your comment about the student body at Notre Dame and and probably just their generation across the board coming sometimes with 
less catechesis than than would be foundational for you know teaching an undergraduate course like that. So, have you seen some parallels between your own lack of catechesis and sometimes the students you encounter? And what is your way through some of that? That's a great question. I think actually it's different from my experience. I don't want to exaggerate or paint a caricature, but my experience is that in the Northeast in the 1970s and 80s, it was common for someone to be a practicing Catholic and just sort of go through the motions Mm -hmm. but never be really evangelized, Mm -hmm. never have a personal relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. I think that was common for Catholics. What's more common now, and I think some of the sociological research has shown is that you have the rise of the unaffiliated, mm-hmm. or the nuns, as they're sometimes called, N-O-N-E-S. And they tend to be making a conscious choice to disassociate themselves with any religious tradition. So affiliation itself is a problem, whereas it wasn't, I think, in Connecticut in right. the 1970s yeah. and 80s. And so there's this sort of a conscious separation from any religious tradition. And a lot of our students at Notre Dame are somewhere in between my experience and the experience of the nuns, although more and more are just unaffiliated. Mm -hmm. So when I distribute cards at the beginning of my classes and I ask them to write down their religious belonging or disposition, you know, more and more I'm getting students who who will say unaffiliated. Mm -hmm. That's a different disposition, right? Unaffiliated. And it's not so much the work of catechesis, but it's the work of evangelization. Of Mm -hmm. course, it has to be done in a sophisticated academic way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not an evangelist or an apologist. You know, I'm a college professor, so I want to introduce them to the sort of robust academic study of theology, mm-hmm. but also showing the coherence of the faith that would allow them to enter into sort of a theological imagination. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's worth noting that for a lot of these students, this is their first year at Notre Dame that you're encountering right. them. And so they, they come from a past either of a robust practice of faith or, or not. You talked about a, a growing up in more secular culture. So I'm actually interested in your perspective as a parent. What have been some of the ways that you have found it important to share the practice of your faith with your children? Right. Great question. We try to have a pretty active faith life at home. You know, that involves regular prayer in the evening as a family. We still manage to keep that up by the grace of God, although it is getting everyone, the six of us all around the table or sitting on the floor in the same room is a challenge. Mm -hmm. gets more difficult as kids get older. But there's something magical about that moment in family prayer where there could be kids yelling and screaming and wrestling and listening to music, and it's hard to get everyone settled down. But when you finally do... And then we have a moment of silence before we begin our decade of the rosary or whatever we're, we're going to pray. Like that silence as a family, there's something just, just so beautiful about that where you're all in the presence of God. Everyone has their own private prayers, but you're also there as a family. That time has been really precious to us and important. We also try to be active members of our parish in Granger, Indiana, which is St. Pius X. And the, the parish plays a key role. Not everything can be done by a priest in a parish, and at our parish, happily, there's a team of different people who have different ministries, and I think more and more parishes are beginning to appreciate that you have to be sort of working overtime, especially in youth and young adult ministry, in light of the current culture, and our parish has done a really good job of that. That's great to hear. 
What have been some of the lessons of faith that your children have taught you as you see them begin to understand this and take ownership and ask you questions as a, as a parent? Great, yeah. I would say it differs from the oldest to the youngest. It's a pretty big range from yeah. f- 15 to 7. <laughs> yeah. My oldest is really intellectually curious, and he um, has all sorts of sort of apologetics questions. He is an active Catholic himself, but he has um, all sorts of interesting questions about, we were, we were discussing yesterday, about Kobe Bryant, yeah. God rest his soul. Yes. And, you know, he's like, well, should we be praying for Kobe Bryant? We know he was a faithful Catholic, mm-hmm. but do we know he's in heaven? Like, maybe he's in purgatory, mm-hmm. and we have to pray for him. Or, you know, should we pray to him because he was a, a Catholic and maybe he's in heaven, can intercede for us? Mm. And then he was like, no, that would be too weird, <laughs> praying to Kobe Bryant. <laughs> so he has sort of has that sort of intellectual yeah, disposition. Yeah, yeah. And my youngest is really active in our, our family prayer time. Mm-hmm. And he, especially for praying for the deceased mm. and our extended family, mm-hmm. he always brings up their names. Yeah. That's, you know, a real encouragement to hear as well, the way he does that. It's beautiful to watch your children go through the sacraments and and come to understand the faith as their own, because sometimes when we've been a part of it for so long, we can forget that newness, that excitement that a child's own understanding can bring to it. So I think that's a real privilege for us as parents. Definitely. You mentioned as well this idea, and I think probably your family you know, read scripture together, possibly reads the Quran together. What can a Christian gain by encountering the Quran and, and how might a Christian who's never encountered the Quran go about go about that? My own conviction is that it's good to read the Quran with a guide. And there's two reasons. One is that the the Quran is it's an eloquent book. Mm-hmm. And some passages are beautiful. And its eloquence is really connected with its aesthetic form in Arabic. Mm-hmm. So the Quran rhymes. And even beyond that, there's a lot of assonances between words within verses of the Quran. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's unlike the Bible with a possible exception of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. There's some similarity with the Psalms. So it's a book sort of meant to be recited and heard in Arabic. When you encounter it in English... You lose a lot of that, even in good translations. And it's difficult to read as a narrative because it doesn't flow clearly from one topic to another. Mm -hmm. And it seems disjointed to many first-time readers. Mm -hmm. So it's good to have a a guide. So that's one reason just to sort of make sense of it. Another reason is there's a lot of theological questions that it will raise. The Quran has this very strong rhetoric about um, the worship of God alone and it has some polemic against Christian belief in the Trinity mm-hmm. and Christian belief in the divinity of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it seems even to teach that Christ didn't die on the cross. Mm. So there is some sort of points of friction with yep. Christian faith. Sure. So it's, I think it's good to have a Christian book to read that could accompany you through the reading of the Quran. There's an Anglican by the name of Kenneth Craig who's written on, um, he's written a book called The Mind of the Quran and another one called The Event of the Quran, mm-hmm. which are very helpful in thinking thinking through this. So I've also, I've published a book recently called 
Allah, God, in the Quran might be interesting because it, it just deals with a question. It's not written from an explicitly Christian point of view, but it deals with the, the presentation of God in the Quran mm-hmm. in light of the Bible. So what are the differences between the biblical and Quranic uh, idea about God? Okay, okay. Thank you for, for sharing those. Of course, the topic of our podcast, or the title of it, is Everyday Holiness. So we do always like to ask our guests who have been some of the models of holiness in your life from your childhood through your studies and anywhere in between. And you've spoken on this a bit, but if you could expound upon the ways that you are striving after holiness in your own life and vocation. You know, the the saints play such a, a beautiful role in our faith, and I'm so grateful for them. And, you know, there are times where I've gone through doubt and the, the witness of the saints, especially the martyrs, that someone would have such a firm conviction in the truth of the faith that they're ready to give their life for it has been just a beautiful um, source of consolation. You know, and among the saints in particular, my daughter is named after Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. Mother Teresa has been a very important example as a saint to our, to our family and the, all of the missionaries of, of charity that sort of self-giving Christ-like love to the poor and to the dying. And then for me personally, there's a figure by the name of Charles de Foucault, who was beatified, so not canonized, but beatified, who had a very radical conversion to the Catholic faith, a little bit like Thomas Merton's story that we mentioned at the beginning mm-hmm. of the podcast mm-hmm. episode, in France, and then eventually went off to the Holy Land, to Palestine, and then ended up in, in the Algerian desert where he gave his life basically to prayer for the Muslims with whom he lived. And he had this beautiful but very simple image of a cross and a heart, which you know exemplifies that God is love, as we read in First John. There are others, John Vianney, someone I, I like a lot. He was pretty strict, but he's, he's someone I like a lot as the, sort of the simple parish priest who gives his life to his community and Catherine of Siena also. So anyway, I could go on and on, but I'll leave it at that. Sure, sure. And then for your own practice, right. I ask this question a lot, but it's hard to answer because I think we're all on the way towards holiness. But in the ways that you have found yourself growing in your faith and, and making progress in that, what's been important to you in that right. journey? Right, yeah. So it's just living with the church. It's not a very exciting answer. So, you know, I don't have any sort of particular mystical gifts <laughs> or secret prayer practices, but living, living life with the church, you know, there's something so beautiful about being in a parish that accompanies you from, from baptism to last rites. And I just try to be a normal Catholic who has the graces of the church. And we have so many resources in the tradition. You know, I love the rosary, and praying the rosary has been a very good good practice for me. And the Mass is the source and summit of our faith. So it's, it's just being an everyday Catholic. Yeah, no, it's, it's helpful because sometimes we are looking for some big, sweeping, amazing act of faith. And part of the witness, I think, of the saints and other holy people in our lives is there's a very ordinary, everyday aspect of we just continue to recommit ourselves to answer that call each and every day for as long as we have to take our faith seriously and, and let it affect all parts of our life. I agree. Absolutely. Well, Gabriel, I want to thank you for being with us. I think you are a real asset to us here at Notre Dame, a real witness to hope and charity, especially as it relates to 
interreligious dialogue and what we can learn from fellow believers, even of other religions. And I think your work will, will really continue to impact both Notre Dame students as well as society very well. So I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for the encouragement. Absolutely. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. You can subscribe to our Daily Gospel Reflection to hear of future episodes of this podcast. Of course, that's by signing up at faith.indy.edu slash sign up. And also one more reminder of Dr. Reynolds' podcast, Minding Scripture. You can search for that on the internet and wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to that as well. So we thank you for being with us, and until next time, you will be in our prayers. Mm-hmm.